Hey, hi, hello. Welcome back to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your host and producer, Tommy Schacht, but if you're a longtime listener of the pod, then you'll remember our former host and producer, Albert Corellis. They were great, we miss them, and I have been getting hundreds of fan letters each and every day begging for more Albert content. So, just for you guys, I reached way back into the Burn Your Draft archive and dug up an as-of-yet unpublished interview with Albert. This is the last one, though. Seriously. And it's a bit of a trip. Betsy Hoekstra was a philosophy major, but that doesn't mean that her thesis was purely theoretical. Keep listening to hear how Betsy fully immersed herself in the consideration of epistemic injustice in psychiatry. A quick warning before today's episode. This episode contains descriptions of mental crisis, including psychosis and involuntary hospitalization. I'm Betsy Hoekstra. I grew up in Michigan. I was a philosophy major, and on my thesis, my advisor was Mark Bedeau. And my thesis is called Now Doc, Hear Me Out, Epistemic Injustice in Psychiatry and a Case for Philosophy of Science as a Resource for Intervention. Okay, can you like break it down just like basic elevator pitch for what's going on in your title at least? My thesis involved a combination of philosophy of science and moral philosophy. All of this is applied to a real-world topic of psychiatry research that pertains to mental illness in particular. In philosophy of psychiatry, they have a little association, actually, when I got to go to their yearly conference because it was COVID, so it was online. Did you get to, like, meet your citations? Yeah, I did, and they were all really nice and, like, would email me advanced copies of things they were publishing. That's so sick. Yeah, this is actually a very cutting-edge area of philosophy. The thesis process in general is described as you're going to have a question that you want to answer. You don't know. Maybe you have a way you think it'll go, but you don't know it'll go that way. And in the end, you'll just see how it comes out. My thesis was not like that at all. I had personal experience that got the wheels turning. And then my whole thesis was pursuit of expressing that vision. My advisor knew a lot about philosophy of science, which is why I chose him, actually. I took philosophy of science with Mark, and that's when I was exposed to Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Kuhn was like a physicist and a philosopher, and he had this like vision of like something he saw happening Mm -hmm. out in the scientific community. And so he wrote this book to try to explain it. And if you've ever heard people talking about a paradigm shift, the concept of paradigm, that comes from Kuhn. He basically talked about how science has two different modes. Normally happening is normal science, which is like incrementally progressive. It's like Mm -hmm. a bunch of scientists are in the lab and they're all working on the details with all the same kinds of instruments to answer these predefined questions that are standard across the field. And revolutionary science is like, he basically says eventually in normal science, you have these little things that you can't explain where you're going to run an experiment. It's supposed to go one way and it doesn't actually go that way. Mm -hmm. And When that first starts happening, the scientists will usually like look at the guy who got the weird answer and be like, well, you must be doing something wrong. But as they kind of stack up, people start to think, okay, maybe there's something actually significant that we're missing. And there's this kind of social momentum that like propels them away from that paradigm, which the paradigm Mm -hmm. is like a whole way of seeing and doing beliefs and methods and like when there's enough problems then people will start to jump ship and then you get into revolutionary science which is a lot more like unbound there's a lot more unknowns there's experimentation with methods Mm -hmm. and coming up with like new tools so like positing normal science people are verifying and 
honing in the models that they use under this more revolutionary science. People are like looking for new models to explain things that don't fit in the old ones. Yeah. In normal science, people are chipping away every day, almost like Mm -hmm. in the mine of their paradigm, gathering new little details to add to the overall picture. But in revolutionary science, they're like out traversing unexplored territory. And so he talks a lot about progress and the idea that like really where we see the sense of progress is in normal science in this incremental progression of the one idea once you're in a completely new paradigm they can't be compared to each other yeah they're they're differences Um, of kind not of degree yeah you can't just say that like objectively the new paradigm is better Mm -hmm. than the old one on an ultimate standard you could pick some feature and say it's better it like describes this phenomenon better there's this kind of unanswerable question of like Will I get a better answer if I if I shift to the new paradigm or like if I just keep refining my old one? Yeah, the book, it's like a historical evaluation. Yeah. So he's got a lot of really great case studies of times in science with electricity and other things that got outdated. But all of those things along the way definitely are important to getting to where we are. And like, is science truly objective? Can you ever truly know what is going on in the world? That was not really Kuhn's focus, but that's definitely part of my focus. What even is objective knowledge? What are the limitations and how can we really know? I guess, you know, being in philosophy, I read in every single class, we read all these incredibly intelligent, dedicated people pursuing these questions. Like, what is there Mm -hmm. in the world? What is knowledge? They all come out with different answers. And then at the end of the semester, you're like, so what's the answer? But you don't leave actually knowing the answer. If anything, you leave knowing that you can't know the answer. So I I think that science, scientific ideas, they're provisional and they're functional. So if we think that electrons exist and have these certain properties and like based on those generalizations, we have some equations and we use the equations Mm -hmm. to create something that works. An electric car, then like that's good enough for me. And I don't know if like electrons really are the fundamental substance, but I don't need to know. It's just about like the utility of the concept. Yeah. Like like, what can I use the concept of electrons for? I can use it to like make batteries or or, or whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter if it's real. It matters if it works. Yeah. I also like, I don't think that like the electric car is evidence that like electrons are the fundamental substance. But that's because I'm just a little bit on the mystic side of things. And <laughs> I've abandoned trying to know things, except for in a provisional way. <laughs> you you have this problem with what science can do and the ways that science generates knowledge. Does this lead nicely into epistemic injustice? It does, in a way, but it's not quite what you're thinking. So epistemic injustice is a concept created by Miranda Fricker. Maybe not exclusively her, but she wrote a whole book on it. She was piggybacking off some other people as all philosophy is. So epistemic injustice is when a person is wronged in their capacity as a knower and in a social way because it, it it's based on being perceived as part of like a marginalized social group. So like when a black man is pulled over by police and says whatever he's doing, but the police don't believe him because he is a black man. Or if a woman gets an IUD placed and says that's really painful, but her yeah. report of that pain is kind of not taken seriously in virtue of her being a woman. Obviously, it would be very The people not believing are probably not likely to admit that it was because of that. It was because she was a woman. But there's the idea that there's these underlying currents of social power. That dictate who gets to know things. 
Exactly. So Fricker puts it into two basic categories. There's testimonial injustice, which is when somebody's personal expressions of some knowledge are dismissed, discounted, disbelieved. And then there's hermeneutic injustice, which is a deprivation of social resources for understanding one's experience. So it's like a systematic lack of words or concepts for like describing and talking about your experience. She Mm -hmm. says that this happens because like the people with the most social power, they control and define the language. They're not like creating discourse that's going to be useful to you. Yeah. And like not only discourse, but even just literally words. Whoever is in control of education, science, research. Yeah. Whoever's like in control of the culture and the institutions, Mm -hmm. they're the ones who like are creating and like defining terminology. So it's like before we had the word mansplain, there is like a gap in the types of experiences that women can communicate about like men. And so it's like they have this new word mansplain to like give some sort of like interpretation. Yeah, exactly. She does say that people within the marginalized groups have ways of communicating about their experiences with each other, but they can't really communicate that to the outside world. It's almost like they're on, Mm -hmm. on an island and they're the ones who have to create the bridge to like communicate. There's a large gap between you and the people who don't have your experience and identity. And you're like deprived of the the resources to really communicate your experience to them in a way that can be understood. Elizabeth Barnes talked a lot about epistemic injustice. I was actually underway with my thesis before I learned this concept. And I would say my thesis is in two sections. The first section introduces definitions of mental illness, psychiatry, science, the role that connects all those things together, and epistemic injustice in psychiatry. And the second section is about Thomas Kuhn, and it's a case study of paradigms in psychiatry. The Kuhn section was where almost all the focus was for a really long time, because that was what my advisor knew about already. Mm -hmm. And it felt like real philosophy. Like, And so I was doing that almost to justify my vision and it's using a philosophy book that's like well known and my advisor was very supportive of that project of like okay we're gonna map coon on to psychiatry but mm-hmm. what's funny is that now once the thesis was complete i think the most sparkly jewel of insight that came out of it was definitely not the coon section i think the sparkly jewel was like inside me all along but the main work of the thesis was just to like mm-hmm. This is so cringe. This is the most cringe analogy. You know, like a sculptor, you like have this. Go for it. Lump. Yeah. You have the you lump have and you're like. You jewel out. Yeah. And like, but I could feel it. Like I knew it was like I could see the sculpture, but I had to find the ways of communicating it. And there were so many thesis meetings where I was like trying to explain it. I was like, no, but this is, this is what I'm saying. And it was, it was honestly probably mm-hmm. good, you know, that I had a, an advisor who was like not on the same page as me. And at the end, it was really satisfying. It's cool that now I have an easier time explaining it. It feels good to kind of have a grip on things. We talked about Fricker. Okay, so central to Fricker is like all these things happen because it's all happening in a socially embedded context. And in this context, there is what she calls social power. Social power is held up systemically by all of these different things, institutions, ideas, different hierarchies of authority. People have beliefs about the world that like they think are scientific because they're informed by science, you know? So they might say electrons exist and that's why your phone cord can charge your phone. That's like a scientific belief. Yeah. And then we also have meta-scientific beliefs, 
which are like beliefs about science. So science is value-free. Science is objective. Scientific facts are metaphysically ultimate descriptors of how the world really is. Not my position for sure. (laughs) Science is the only or best, most reliable method of gaining information about the world. So it should be the only method in high-stakes situations. Scientific evidence is the only suitable material for making clinical decisions, which that's a very common perspective right now with the rise of so-called evidence-based medicine. So I say that meta-scientific beliefs imbue science with social power. We really value like objectivity and like being unbiased and so forth. And so if we believe that science has these. Yes, exactly. You just said it perfectly. Yeah, which that's not a new point. I think like anybody could probably reason that out, but I don't know how many people have really Mm -hmm. specifically said it. I think it's just so relevant. It's an amazing time to be talking about these things. I feel really blessed by my muse to be at this intersection of all these things and able to see them and voice them at a time that it's really happening, like going on immediately right now. People are giving science authority in this culture right now, at least speaking for where I'm embedded, the United States that I do believe Mm -hmm. is unwarranted and unjustified because of my exposure to philosophy of science, especially feminist philosophy of science. First, there were the the theological positivists. You know, they were like, science is a really special thing and Mm -hmm. logic is a really special thing. Analytic logic is the way that we get to what is true. And science is like the practical manifestation of that unique power. And after the kind of like rise and fall of logical positivism, the the feminists were like, hey, maybe you should reconsider that idea that like science is this specially privileged thing, which is fully objective. And there are these five values. And they're like, oh, science is these five things. And that's what makes it so special. And then the feminist Mm -hmm. philosophers of science did this takedown where they went one by one in each value, like objectivity. And they were like, here's how it's like not objective. And also here's how even if it was, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be that special thing you think it is. It's not safe. It's not protected from the kind of human dimension. Science is a social process. And that social element of it factors into like the whole entire thing. It factors into like what research gets done, what questions are asked, what methods are approved. And the creation of knowledge is in this socially embedded framework. It was feminist philosophy of science because they were specifically interested in how science was upholding and kind of perpetuating wrongs against women. So Mm -hmm. there's examples in medicine of heart disease and heart attacks being studied in men, and then Mm -hmm. they define the symptoms of a heart attack in context of a male physiology, which, and as a result, more women die of heart attacks because they're not identified because the literature is skewed very heavily to the male experience. Same with car crash Mm -hmm. dummies modeled after male physiology. Women are more likely to be injured in car accidents. And then there's this other book. It's like a feminist philosophy of science primer kind of thing. And that's where I read the like takedown of those scientific values. And I mm-hmm. swear, it really, really opened my mind to see the whole, the world in just a, a whole new way. And that, I think, gets us right into a great place for me to to just say something about my, my personal experience. Basically, the short story is I had a very far out experience, which you could label in a number of ways. You could call it a manic episode. 
You could also call it a spiritual emergence or a spiritual emergency. You could also call it just psychosis. I had an experience of organic psychosis. Mm -hmm. And after about a week or two of escalating on this uh, transcendent universal superhighway, I was involuntarily hospitalized and forced Mm -hmm. on antipsychotics. And I was hospitalized for two weeks. That sounds really stressful. Yeah, it was very traumatic, but the psychosis was not what was traumatic. As surreal and strange and full of wildness as that was, that was not scary to me. Now, many people do have experiences of psychosis. The the psychosis itself is traumatizing for them. But what was most traumatic was just my experience in the hospital system and how the people in the emergency department and in the psych hospital related with me and how that power... Epistemic injustice. Yeah, like how that power and control was enforced upon me. It was very profound. My life has been changed. It was like a rebirth for me. It was an undoing of core existential doubts and things that plagued my consciousness for my whole mm-hmm. life were simultaneously all released and unbound. And yeah. and I would say my life is better now. I'm a happier, healthier, more just alive person now. But I had this transformative experience where I was like apprehending all these things, this very spiritual sense. And it definitely mm-hmm. at times had a nice little silver lining of delusion and just high strangeness. But in the core of it was something mm-hmm. that to me felt really genuine and pure. And yeah. I get so to the hospital. Maybe some like out of step with reality stuff. There's still like something really productive going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Just like a, a kind of soul level validation and also a sense of the interconnectedness of all things and my place in that. Mm-hmm. An overwhelming sense of like love and rightness in the world and all the ways that it unfolds. And then sometime after that, I'm like, oh, Nikola Tesla is going to come back and free energy principle is going to reign. And like all of us are going to just ride on to heaven. You probably don't know what I mean. Less profound and useful than uh, your unity with the universe is like telling of Nikolai Tesla's like rebirth. Yeah, yeah. Part of the problem is that we see psychosis as this senseless, nonsensical thing. And there are niche groups of people who are actually interested in allowing psychosis to have meaning, even if that might be symbolic rather than a literal meaning. So I had this like direct contact Mm -hmm. with mystical experience that was really moving for me. But then I'm like, I'm in this hospital and I realized that they don't want to hear about that. And they ask questions like, okay, so why are you here? If I explain it in my terms, that gets written down as evidence that I'm still sick and that I need to stay there longer. And the psychiatric perspective colonizes your mind and you can try to resist it, but a part of you has to believe what they're saying so that you can seem realistic when you repeat Mm -hmm. it to them so that you're allowed to go home. You need to play the right part because if you dig in your heels and you're like, no, it really was a spiritual experience, they're just going to say like your lack of insight is persistent, essentially. And then that is like a poorer prognosis. Like, okay, so we better up the dose because she still doesn't believe that what happened is an illness. And so I was in there and these other gears were turning. I was very aware 
of what was going on. And I felt like the way that they were enforcing the ideas they were forcing upon me, I felt mm -hmm. like they were wrong. And maybe the wrongness of it was just my personal belief. But I also had an understanding. It's the philosophy of science because I'm in the mm -hmm. hospital and the doctors are trying to interpret my experience to me in one way that they clearly like want me to believe. different paradigms. Yes. But for me, it was mm -hmm. so real and so meaningful in a way that it just wouldn't even make sense to disown that yeah. and rewrite it as just an illness and an illusion felt very wrong mm -hmm. to do. And that sense for me was justified by my background as a philosopher, really, is yeah. what I'm saying. I'm like, I literally went to this class. I read all these texts about this context that science is situated in. And there was a day where I was talking to the doctor. I was like, oh, what if I did not go on this medication for the rest of my life? And he just mm -hmm. said, 90% of people who have a manic episode have another one, turns and walks away. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, like, thanks for cherry picking your study. But so that's kind I of like the, the systems of power that ingrain certain types of epistemic injustice is that if you meet these criteria, you get this diagnosis, you get this sort of treatment, you are almost discouraged from seeking out a sort of hermeneutic justice of different vocabulary that contrasts with the scientific paradigm. Yes, there's not really room for like alternative means of self-understanding for you to make your own meaning yeah. of what happens to you if what happens to you is psychosis. Because the extent to which you have an allegiance to that experience, it's just seen as the illness really has its grip on you. And I think that's really tragic. Thing, if like your psychosis insight was telling you that you should murder people, but totally different if your psychosis insight is I have a newfound sense of purpose and belonging that didn't exist before. One of those <laughs> seems like a really bad thing to throw away. And the fact that science treats those as like the same thing is definitely a little concerning. Yeah, yeah. It's just really complex. And I think they want it to be simple. And that makes sense. Medical mm -hmm. decision making functions on having rules of thumb and like standards of care. Mm -hmm. And to let somebody leave without antipsychotics, that's not really like up to the standard of care. But yeah, just to have that perspective, it was really interesting to be me at that point because I like kind of saw beyond the veil. And also I had all this previous life experience and education. And even though I had to accept what they were saying to the extent that I could repeat it so I could leave, I had this inner sense of the way that I'm being mm -hmm. treated right now is unnecessary. And I don't have a good reason to believe what they believe because I was like, what even is the foundations of what they believe? And that's where it gets back to this philosophy of science stuff. I'm not mm -hmm. confident in psychiatric science. The people who are creating the studies the frameworks and paradigms around the pursuit of knowledge, the construction of psychiatric knowledge, it just seems really off base to me. Like neurodiversity theory, you may have heard of it. It's got a lot of popularity around autism. Neurodiversity theory is, hey, maybe there's just different ways of being and not all of them we have to classify as a disorder or an illness. Yeah. And I am an advocate for expanding the conversation of neurodiversity to include bipolar and schizophrenia, these quote, emotional disorders or psychotic disorders, I'm really interested in creating space for there to be more curiosity and mm -hmm. allowance of those people to like make their own meaning. People, including myself. Yeah, I mean, because historically, like a lot of the justification for designating something like bipolar as a disorder is the great disservice that it does to people that are experiencing bipolar. But if you have a manic episode and it's like, oh my God, I have this newfound sense of purpose that I didn't have before then that doesn't really seem to be detrimental in the same way that other people's manic episodes might be. Yes, and there definitely were detrimental elements to my manic episode. I did spend a lot of money. I bought every magazine in the airport gift shop because I thought yeah. that like I was going to get this financial insight out of it. Probably a good idea to have some sort of reality checkpoint 
Yeah, there's ideas about like you make a document that's what you would want to happen in the instance that you had a manic episode. You create a plan ahead of time that you can put into process if you're in a different space. I think that the ways that we talk about and understand these disorders also contributes to the harm. Just believing that you have this eradicable illness inside of you that's going to come out at any moment that you need to be afraid of and seek to control at all costs. And what we have to control it are these medications, which have a whole lot of what we call side effects, but are extremely pronounced effects. That is a huge part of it, too, for Mm -hmm. me. The medications and how we fear the illness say that the illness is so bad and scary that it justifies putting our bodies and our minds through this other type of harm. And I'm not trying to invalidate anyone whose lives are really benefited by medication. I just don't think we should stop there. I don't think it's good enough. Mm -hmm. I hope for a future where people with these so-called illnesses, which can be and are extremely troubling for them at times, but the world where we can respond and care for these sensitivities, Mm -hmm. these experiences in a much healthier way that has less of a cost for people. So is like the main point of your thesis that the current paradigms that science is using to understand mental illness perpetuate systems of power which cause epistemic injustice to a lot of people who experience these mental illnesses. Yes. And also that all of this is tied up in what people believe Mm -hmm. science is and can do. And the idea is like, instead of like, oh, end the stigma by educating people about mental illness, which really is indoctrinating people with the current mainstream understanding medically of the illness. Mm -hmm. Instead, I say, okay, what if we educate people about the nuances of science? What is scientific knowledge really about? And if it's about functional things, the medications we have, they are not functional enough. The harms are much too great. So I think we need a cultural shift of meta-scientific mm-hmm. education. Psychiatry needs revolutionary science, basically. There's like a need for some paradigm shift. Yeah, and people who actually have experienced these things should be front and center for that reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So to be a philosopher of science with all this education was just one thing that helped me to protect that sacred part inside myself that felt like what was happening to me was not okay and was wrong and that there was meaning in what I experienced worth holding on to. And I just think what is really sad and messed up is most people, they don't have the background that I have. It's an oppressive situation to be in. And I was really lucky to have some resources from the outside with some authority in the world, what authority Mm -hmm. established philosophy has, that was empowering to me. I hope for everyone to have more of that. And so I think that's really what is at the heart of my thesis is trying to express those ideas so that the empowerment that comes from just disempowering the monolith of science a little bit and giving a little bit more power back to ourselves, to people who are in this marginalized situation where we're having something that happens Mm -hmm. to us, this mental illness, that the world thinks that it understands. But its understanding is really harming us a lot. And maybe we can trust ourselves a little bit more and just be a little bit more playful and experimental, finding a way forward that could be better for everybody. So can you tell me a little bit about what your basic day-to-day process was for writing your thesis? It looked like avoiding it, and that did not serve (laughs) me well. But I'm also a big believer that like whatever you can do, you are doing. There's some paradoxical Mm -hmm. complexity there. In the world that I was in at Reed, I didn't really have the study skills, shall we say. I couldn't discipline myself to get my butt in the chair. My thesis was very, very painful, honestly. It was a lot of hating myself for not doing the work. But on the best days, which was not day to day, 
It involved going to the library and just searching keywords of the ideas that were going around in my head and then downloading and printing out a bunch of articles. As I was doing the thesis project, there were new articles being published all the time in philosophy of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Engaging with a lot of that helped me, I guess, be pairing branches off the tree of all the ideas that I had. I mm -hmm. would find articles that validated what I was thinking, and then I could put them to rest a little mm -hmm. bit. I had to call a lot of material, but yeah, yeah mostly it was um, not doing it, and I would not recommend that. Can you tell me a bit about how you think your thesis experience will impact your life going forward? Right now, I'm in Burlington, Vermont, because I am actually living out the work that I was talking about in my thesis. Really nice. blessed, really lucky. I work at Satiria, Vermont, which is an alternative approach, an alternative paradigm, shall we say, to mental health. I guess I kind of hate the word mental health, but it's an alternative approach to caring for and supporting people in psychosis. It started in mm -hmm. California as an experiment in the 70s. We are mm -hmm. funded by the state, which is really cool. It was nice. established in 2013. Let's go Vermont. So yeah, so Satiria, Vermont, it's a five-bed house where people in active psychosis or as we call extreme states or in crisis can mm -hmm. live for four to six months, sometimes less, sometimes more, and day-to-day -day in the house. It's peer support. It's based on the principles of we're not here to be fixing or helping. We're just here to be sharing in this experience together and like discovering and being curious mm -hmm. together. We do art. We go on walks. Nobody's locked in anywhere. And overall, it's just a place mm -hmm. where people can be doing meaning making without somebody else forcing any one perspective on them. We can have dialogues about things and we can have days where we don't think mm -hmm. about it at all. And also there is no forced medication. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. There are more satirias. Almost like a harm reduction approach to psychosis. Yeah, actually, yeah. There's definitely overlap there. It definitely nice. reduces trauma compared to the traditional approach. I'm really proud and happy to be involved. I found it when I was doing research to see if maybe there was somewhere that I could intern in the field. But most like mental health organizations are perpetuating the oppression that I'm trying mm -hmm. to combat. So I wouldn't want to work at most of them. And so I found mm -hmm. this. I didn't know there was a satiria in the United States. There are some mm -hmm. in Europe. And so I didn't go there to intern. But the day mm -hmm. after I turned in my thesis, I had my video interview. And as soon as my thesis was done, I had an offer to go and work full time here. To anybody, I would just say, if you're feeling like you don't know where your life's going and you're like getting down on yourself about that, it only takes one thing to work out. So there's not as much to um, worry about. So in that vein, do you have any advice for readies in general or readies that are doing their thesis? Let me think. Try to smoke less weed. <laughs> that definitely helps. Do your homework. Do as much homework as you can do and try to push yourself to do what you're being asked to do. I think a lot of us have experiences in school where we're asked to do a lot of stupid things. So you come to read with this feeling that all the things you're asked to do are stupid. Also, I read the things you're asked to do can be really hard. I loved being in class, but I, I wasn't able to do the majority of the work that was assigned to me. And I do believe in philosophy. The work that they assign you really does prepare you incrementally to handle more demands. By the time mm -hmm. I was in my thesis process, I felt like I was going to the gym for the first day and they 
they had five boxes stacked on top and they said like jump on top of the boxes you know you need to jump on one for a month and then jump on two and so I honestly I didn't believe that I could do it and I spent months agonizing over that thinking maybe I really just wasn't ready I, I wasn't good enough in the end I did pull through but I think if I had done more of my work I probably wouldn't have had that doubt when it came time for thesis do you have any like shout outs to people focus mate online service that pairs you with other people who have things to work on for half hour or 50 minute shifts so good yeah that is how I finished my thesis chaining together all these focus mate sessions in the last push it was like 24 straight hours of focus mate writing my mom Meg Charlie she was really cool really just all the professors who believed in me I needed that at the time. And Awais Aftab, and I might be pronouncing his name wrong, but Awais Aftab is a psychiatrist who has a really great series, Conversations in Critical Psychiatry on uh, Psychiatry Today. He's doing some really cool work and he's just one of the many really supportive and cool people who I met through that work. Association for Advancement of Philosophy and Psychiatry. Big shout out to them, the people who are actively doing this work. It's really cool and really needed. Yeah, if these ideas sound cool to you, yeah, read my thesis, but my thesis is half-baked in places, but my further reading section is loaded and you can see all the okay. like really awesome work people are doing in the further reading section. Definitely hitting up the further reading section. <laughs> and if you want to check out Betsy's further reading section and you're a Read alum, student, faculty, or staff member, You can log on to Read Digital Collections for full access to Betsy's thesis, as well as hundreds of others. A big thank you to Betsy for sharing her story, and thank you for listening. Burn Your Draft is a production of Read College and the Center for Life Beyond Read, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Read College student Tommy Schacht. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janica. Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlick and Lillian Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.